This episode is sponsored by the Women's History Initiative at the Utah Historical Society, seeking to amplify women's stories and deepen our collective understanding of the many roles women play in history. This episode is sponsored by our Patreon supporters, Skylar Collins, Julie Gray, Bree Smith, Jill Harrigan, Kim Hokinson, Janelise Cannon, Jamie Lang, Maria Carla Sanchez, Heather McKinnon, Valerie Jacobson, Chantel Oliver, Eugene Lewis, and Lindsay Cummings. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. Just visit our website and click donate. Happy Halloween, Katie! Happy Halloween. We have a special scary treat today. We are going to be talking about the Countess Elizabeth Bathory. Oh dear. Who was possibly the most evil woman ever to live. Mm-hmm. She famously, in the 17th century, tortured and killed over 600 young girls. Mm-hmm. Bathing in their blood weekly in an attempt to keep her youthful appearance. Yes, very fairy tale villain. Yeah, she was also probably a vampire. Okay. And definitely a witch. Okay. And the most terrifying monster ever to be born. Mm -hmm. Or was she? (laughs) History has gone back and forth on this story many times. We're going to dig into it a bit today. Okay. Try to figure out what happened. (laughs) I do want to warn listeners, we are going to talk about some more dark stuff than usual in this episode. But we are not going to be going gruesome, voyeuristic, horror movie ick. Elizabeth Bathory was not just your average rich Hungarian aristocrat. Elizabeth Bathory was... An incredibly well-educated, intelligent woman. She was a central figure in the kingdom's political and intellectual life. Fluent in multiple languages when (laughs) most people, including her husband, were barely literate in one. She could have gone down in history as a brilliant political leader and cultural powerhouse influencer. Instead... She went down in history as history's most prolific serial killer. Hmm. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's-Her-Name. Fascinating women you've never heard of. Now, the stories about Elizabeth Bathory are unhinged. Mm -hmm. She killed 600 (laughs) young girls... She was a vampire cannibal. She soaked in bathtubs full of the blood of virgins to grant her immortal youth and beauty. (laughs) The reaction against those stories arrives after a few hundred years of villainy, which casts her as an innocent victim of political maneuvering. Sure. Of witch hunt hysteria or mass psychosis or plain old misogyny. She was a woman too powerful and independent for her time, and society punished her for it, Mm -hmm. says this version. Okay. Probably somewhere in between Mm. lies the truth. There's a lot here, and we're barely going to scratch the surface. (laughs) So I have invited legal historian and the person who's probably spent more time with this story than anyone else, Kimberly Kraft, 
to help us navigate this appalling and wow. confusing tale. Thank goodness. Hi, everyone. My name is Kim Pratt. I'm a, a lawyer. Sometimes I like to tease and say I'm a liar. No, I mean, I'm a lawyer. I'm also a historian. I really enjoy legal history. And my research on Countess Elizabeth Bathory's fulfillment of the joy I have in doing legal research and scholarship and finding out the truth about what really happened. Kim Kraft is the author of Infamous Lady, the true story of Countess Elizabeth Bathory and the translator of The Private Letters of Countess Elizabeth Bathory. <laughs> her name is Elizabeth. Almost everyone in the Western world calls her Elizabeth now, so that's what we're going with. What got me interested in looking into what is the true story of Countess Elizabeth Bathory, when you look at her actual biography, and then you look at all the myths and the legends surrounding her, they don't make a lot of sense. So I had the good fortune to live in Europe for a while, and I went through many of the archives and assembled what I could find of all the original source material. And then I spent about two years translating these original letters. They're written in Old Hungarian, Old German, and Latin. Countess Bathory was born in 1560. She died in 1614. She's living at the time we would consider to be the high Renaissance or the early modern period. She's a colleague of Queen Elizabeth I. This is also the time when the pilgrims are arriving in America. We've got some of the greatest inventions of the Renaissance are coming to light. Yet we have witch burnings and witch trials going on. We have the Reformation going on in, in Europe. When Elizabeth Bathory was 10 years old, she was betrothed to be married. 10-year-old Elizabeth is sent to her husband's house to be trained on how to be a proper lady and wife. This is pretty standard. You gotta She's go to gonna grow up in her school. husband's household. Yeah. In those days, marriage as we know was a binding of estates, a union of property. She's very, very wealthy. Her husband's family is incredibly wealthy. We want to keep that wealth of the family. We want to have these diplomatic and military allegiances. The idea would be she would leave her family's home, travel to her husband's court, where she would be training in how to become a noble woman, how to run the estate, how to handle the servants, how do you do the courtly dances, what is the cultural etiquette, how do you receive visitors, all that sort of thing. Her husband is only a few years older than she is. His interests lie with the military. He's not a scholar, as his mother said, not very scholarly, but he's a good soldier. He's off training. He's gone most of the time. The lady of the estate, her husband's mother, also passes away around the same time. So she's largely being raised by the courtiers and the relatives of her husband. She doesn't know any of these people. They are married at 15, and she and her husband are incredibly wealthy. They own five estates in multiple countries. She is a natural leader. She's a brilliant woman. She's gifted at diplomacy, at social management. Her husband is not. 
She really was the brains of the operation. She had a seat in parliament. It's really kind of amazing when you think of a woman to have so much power and authority 400 years ago. He was gone more than he was there because the minute he'd come home, he'd be off to another campaign fighting the Turks, leaving her alone, even as a teenager and an early 20-something, running multiple estates that included castles, towns, churches. It's kind of like being a CEO of a corporation, and you're barely a teenager trying to do this. The stress of being in charge of these estates so often would lead to what I would sort of describe as these psychological meltdowns. You'll see these court documents saying that she would be serving tea to the prime minister, for example, or she'd be at a high society function and she would be laughing and the picture of elegance. And yet the stress of it was so bad that almost every time after, when she was behind closed doors, she would have a psychotic episode. So you seem to have had these kinds of psychotic breaks mm. where this elegant, cultured woman becomes a brutal, violent, vicious monster mm. for a moment. She is terrifying and dangerous and violent. But it doesn't seem, at least from what we can kind of piece together looking backwards on the story, that this is something at the beginning that is chosen that she is planning to do this. She's getting pleasure out of this violence. And the victims of her rage were always, always these young servant girls between 11 and 14 years old. If they did anything wrong, if they ironed her gown improperly, if they didn't clean something perfectly, she would go into a psychotic rage against them. She would grab the heaviest thing she could find, a cudgel, an iron poker from the fireplace, and literally beat this girl into a bloody pulp. She just snaps, mm. goes wild, and then calmly goes about her day as if nothing happened. It is always, always young girls. That part is true. Why? We don't know. Oh, there's so many psychological layers there. Yes, so exactly. <laughs> I mean, one possible theory is... I'm not a forensic psychiatrist, but I have spoken to some who asked me, well, what happened to her at that age? Because a lot of times with serial killers, we can trace it to something, of course, in their own history that motivates this. And... She leaves her own home around the ages of 10 or 11. She's married at the age of 15. And that's that really specific time when she is away from her own family, living at her husband's court. And even if you were a noble child, it was not uncommon that noble children were brutalized in an effort to get them to conform to the ways of court, the methods of how to behave. So even though there's no written proof of this, there, there likely never would be, leads me to suspect that she herself was horrifically brutalized as a young girl, which led her to acquire this pathology. All of that is speculation, of course, but this may be some sort of reason for 
this specific choice of victims. And these first incidents seem to be spontaneous, sudden breaks with decorum, sanity, and then back to normal. But slowly, somehow, and we don't know how or over how long a period, things start to escalate. She is not just occasionally battering a poor little girl to death every few years. She now appears to be doing it on purpose and with enthusiasm and pleasure and planning. And that kind of led into a lot of the mythology, a lot of the thinking that these ritual killings were because she needed to have access to the blood of young virgin girls. Her killing hundreds of girls and bathing in their blood and being a vampire and the story has just got more and more embellished over time. But we now have the genesis for where the story comes from literally taking blood baths. And the story goes like this. Supposedly, she's having her hair combed, young servant girl, combing her hair, which is very long and thick. And, you know, the comb hits a snag, pulls the hair, and it hurts. And the Countess has sort of this rage reaction to pain. And in a fit of rage, she slaps the servant in the face. And one of her rings cuts the girl's face. And according to the story, blood spurts out from the girl's nose and mouth. And it kind of sprays on the Countess's face and hands. And so reviled by this, we see the Countess like trying to uh, wipe it all off. Only to find, again, according to the story, that the blood of this young servant girl has acted like a magical beauty elixir. Suddenly, the middle-aged countess's wrinkles are all gone. Her face is restored to its youthful vigor and vitality to the point where she's looking at this girl like, get over here. I I need more, right? Her husband himself was known to be extremely brutal. This is a man that not only tortured and killed his Turkish enemies, he was reputed when he beheaded his enemies to actually play ball games with their heads. He's a very brutal man himself at a very brutal time. Which is funny because these same nobles, when they're in polite society, are the pictures of Christian virtue they have their own rules of behavior with each other, and they're very collected, very measured, very intellectual. And yet behind closed doors, the things that would go on are just horrific. They really, they're almost mismatched in this new Renaissance era. They're really creatures of the Middle Ages, and they've come from a mindset where the peasantry, the serfs, the servants, the, the non-noble people were their property. I don't know if we really understand that when you look at feudal Europe, it is also a slave system. The servants, the serfs that worked the land would have to do very, very, very long hours, six days a week. They were not allowed to travel. And when it comes to a system of crime and punishment, they have no rights. The feudal lord, the noble overseeing them, 
could beat out any kind of punishment that they wanted. That went as far you could meet out the death penalty if you wanted to. And being the noble, nobody was going to stop you or question what you did. I think it's important to understand that Countess Bathory, as a noble woman, grows up in a household where this is common. Punishments we would think of as very sadistic were not only meant to keep the peasantry in line, but to send a message. Freedmen and lesser nobles are people, and if you do stuff to them, you are probably going to be kind of held accountable as a noble. But the higher up and more powerful you are, the harder it is going to be to get anyone to actually take you to trial for anything. And she is very, very powerful. She is at the top of the ladder. And it's important to keep in mind because... Countess Bathory, when she or her staff are killing young peasant girls, uh, there might be some rumor or some gossip, but nobody really cares or does anything, nor can they, really. And as it's escalating, she's gotten her servants involved. Two women, especially, who seem to really like this whole torturing thing. And according to some sources, are the ones who introduce her to that sort of premeditated, grisly stuff of nightmares abuse that she will become involved in later on. (laughs) These women are terrifying. And I think is part of the fascination too, Mm -hmm. right? Women are not supposed to be like this. They're victims of violence, absolutely, but not perpetrators. Not psychopathic, violent monsters. It subverts all of our narratives about how women are Mm -hmm. and why violence happens. Mm. Which makes it way more fascinating. Mm. People start to notice. The first people to raise the alarm seem to be ministers. Hey, uh, you're sure asking us to bury a lot of servant girls in the church cemetery. What's going on? And we're talking, you know, maybe 15, 20, over maybe a period of 10, 15 years. And Elizabeth Bathory quickly declares typhus. There's a typhus outbreak in the castle. Totally reasonable. There's Mm -hmm. a kind of constantly outbreaks of typhus. Okay, but, um, Countess, why are the only ones dying of this typhus outbreak, young girls? And at that point, it's time for Hubby to step in with the bribe, or the threat, or possibly both. Mm. At first, when the killings started, around the time when she was in her late 20s, early 30s, the preachers in town actually started going after her in the sermons. We hear rumors of torturing and violence against the staff, saying this publicly. They didn't have the legal right to bring an action against her, but they could try to embarrass her publicly. And she would act in a rage, like, how dare you accuse me? I'm going off to write to my husband right now. She'd leave in a huff. Then her husband would I'm going to say they were very generous donors to the church. 
<laughs> For a while, this technique seems to work. Just shut up and bury the bodies. Mm-hmm. And he will, because even if she has killed them, what can he do about it? It is totally legal. And are they and getting a few churchyard burial? She's giving them a proper yeah. burial? Wow. But they know nobody's going to do anything about it, even if it is true. And meanwhile, the Bathory's could certainly have them fired, or worse, sure. if they continue to make waves. So they let it go for a while until they can't let it go anymore. Madam, this is too much. This is too many bodies. What is going on up there? Now, I'm saying ministers multiple because, of course, the Bathory's own five estates. They are moving around between various houses. And there are at least three ministers raising serious concerns over the number of bodies they are being asked to bury. Ugh. And so they started writing to the bishops and asking for advice. What do we do? She's a high noble, but I mean, we think there's something really suspicious going on. Meanwhile, her handmaids were showing up in town with these black and blue marks and scratches and burn marks and their hands bandaged. And, you know, people starting to talk like, what is going on? And now let's pause for a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by the Women's History Initiative at the Utah Historical Society, seeking to amplify women's stories and deepen our collective understanding of the many roles women play in history. This season of What's Her Name is sponsored by the Women's History Initiative at the Utah Historical Society. Think you know Utah history? Think again. The Women's History Initiative highlights Utah's dynamic history makers. Eight sovereign nations in Utah since time immemorial, pioneers, explorers, immigrants, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and dreamers who have made a home there ever since. Join the Society to read the Utah Historical Quarterly, attend free virtual events, and get news about the future Museum of Utah. Visit history.utah.gov slash UWH to learn more. And the long-awaited statue of what's-her-name favorite Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon will be installed in the National Statuary Hall collection at the U.S. Capitol within the next few months. Just the 13th woman featured in the hall. Follow at Utah State History on Instagram to catch Martha on the move as she makes her journey to D.C. And teachers at all levels can find all kinds of curriculum resources on their website, history.utah.gov slash UWH. Rumors start flying, increasingly outlandish. The Countess was hiding multiple bodies in each coffin. The Countess was sending her servants out to bury the bodies themselves in the cemetery at night. She was having bodies buried in her own castle grounds. She is hiding bodies in the house. This is very over-the-top, absolutely ridiculous rumors flying that you certainly could not take seriously. Yeah, I was just trying to do the math in my head, like how many how many yeah. serfs of that age does she have? Yeah, you obviously have to dismiss these stories. They're ridiculous. They can't be true. Until mm -mm. a curious grave digger takes it upon himself to open the coffin of the latest typhus victim mm -mm. and finds two bodies mangled uh. beyond recognition no. inside. Mm -mm. Until the Countess's daughter and her husband come for a visit, and his dog is running around the grounds, 
and comes running back with an arm in its mouth. Until the pastor does a bit of exploring in the tunnels connecting the castle and the church and finds nine bodies rotting in unsealed crates. After he discovers these bodies, that's it. He cannot keep quiet on this anymore. And he tries to send a letter to his superiors in the church. Mm -hmm. That letter is intercepted by the countess's staff. And he is given a very stern warning to shut up and bury the bodies sent to his church or else. Again, all of this is legal. She can do whatever she wants. And if she had limited her attacks to the lower class, (laughs) she probably would have gotten away with this forever. But Countess Bathory is running short of money. Her husband has died. A lot of their liquid assets were coming from the spoils of war. Every time he was out warring with the Turks, and he was very good at what he did, he would raid villages, he would pilfer coffers, he would bring prisoners that he would sell back for ransoms. And even though they owned a lot of property, it's very difficult to sell a castle because there's not many buyers out there. The Countess started facing financial problems. She's running short on money now. And I mean, in the sense that fabulously wealthy aristocrats run out of money. Yeah. So she comes up with a plan to create herself an income stream. She is going to open a finishing school. Nobles across Eastern Europe can send their daughters to her castle to be molded into perfect paragons of young aristocratic ladylike virtue. No. Who would send? Exactly. Her reputation is well out there. The church, the king, the whole aristocratic machine has been gossiping about this woman's sadistic treatment of young girls for years at this point. Obviously, no Hungarian noble is going to send their young daughter to this woman's house. Mm-hmm. And that she believes that they would do that is madness. Just kidding! (laughs) Dozens of nobles sign their daughters up and ship them off to her castle. What? Wow. I guess that signifies that no nobles, at least, are believing any of the rumors. They are. That's the crazy part here to me. I I find that hard to believe. How could you do that, right? How could you do that? I think it is the most shocking indicator of just how strongly these people believed in that invisible dividing line between serfs and people. Mm. Those massacred servant girls were sad, of course, but there is no connection in their minds between those girls and the daughters of the nobility. She would never Mm. dare treat our daughters. It probably wasn't even a matter of daring. It's a category Mm -hmm. question. They're separate categories. It it does not enter their minds that that could affect this. Mm. She does have a lot of customers. All the area nobility are like, well, I mean, she's not going to touch one of war girls, even if it is true, right? (laughs) No, nope. She sure does. These are still also young females, the same age group that seems to pathologically set her off. 
what is she doing? What is in her mind? Is she just supplying herself with new girls? Has she run out of serfs? Or maybe she herself so strongly believes in that dividing line and thinks she won't cross it. It hasn't occurred to her that she might treat these girls this way. And then she surprises herself. Mm. Or maybe she's been getting away with this stuff for, for decades now, mostly thanks to her husband's bribing or threatening or probably both of anyone who threatened to narc on her. Has she gotten away with it for so long that she has brain damaged herself into believing she is untouchable, sure. that she cannot be held accountable? Or she's dissociative and she doesn't yeah. know that or it's her just, that's doing it or whatever. Or is she just straight up insane? Yeah. And we are trying to ascribe yeah. a reasonable thought process to a person who is not That's that. it. Either way, it is this plan that is her eventual downfall. Quietly disposing of a few dozen servant girls is one thing. The daughters of the elite of the kingdom is quite another. And when the girls stop sending letters, parents start asking questions. And when parents start showing up, demanding to see their daughters, and are turned away with the worst excuses imaginable, they get really, really angry and start making public spectacles and threatening all kinds of things, as you would. (laughs) And when a few of them do finally get to see their daughter, and she immediately starts screaming about all of the horrors that have been going on. We had girls escaping. One of them was found in town with literally a knife in her foot that don't ask me how she managed to get down the hill in this condition. And that's when the formal inquests were brought by the noble families who had the legal and political authority to do that. For the first time, people are taking this seriously. And she is starting to be questioned by officials. And she's starting to go more obviously off the rails. She starts associating with a woman who is known to be a forest witch, consulting with the forest witch to give her magical spells and potions. In one very famous scene that is documented, she had invited the prime minister and the king. We are both getting very, very suspicious about these rumors. She invites the prime minister and the king over for dinner. They're all friends, all of these families. And she serves them a poisoned, cursed cake that she has made (laughs) with the black magic she's learned from the forest witch. Okay. We're not sure if she's trying to kill them or just get herself off the hook. The rumor at the time is it's supposed to make them leave her alone. Okay. She's not very good at poison making or spell casting apparently, or baking, perhaps. And all she manages to do is to make the king and the prime minister very, very sick and very, very suspicious. Mm -hmm. She knows officialdom is coming for her. Things are spiraling out of control, and she is killing girls faster than her servants can keep up. They're getting desperate. They're dumping them in wells. They're hiding bodies under floorboards. At one point, they dump four bodies over the castle walls, apparently hoping that the wolves will clean them up, but the villagers find them first. If she's this bad at it, and it's this obvious, how did she get away with it for so long? 
people believe what they want to believe about certain types of people and nothing could convince them otherwise. Yes, which is of course a trend that we still see continuing today. Yeah. The the people who are most likely to get away with of course. murders are the people who our social narratives say would never do such a thing. And it wasn't always this obvious. It builds up slowly over decades as she seems to be descending further sure. and further into whatever this is. And of course, there's the fact that the person in charge of criminal investigations is the prime minister himself, the person she just tried to kill who also happens to be her very good childhood friend. Huh. They are close family friends for multiple generations. They call each other cousin. He just simply couldn't believe that any of this was true. But of course, once she tries to possibly poison him and he is getting letters from multiple pastors and nobles about their daughters and all of these unrelated complaints, he simply couldn't ignore it anymore. The king has been pressing him to open an investigation into this for a while, but he knows the king has a powerful motive to want her to be guilty. He has a little bit of personal motivation, I will say, as the king. Not only does he want justice, but there's a little influence on his part wanting it to happen very quickly and in a certain way, because he, in today's money, owed Countess Bathory about $17 billion dollars for the money that he borrowed to finance his campaigns. And the law was pretty clear if he, the king, could find her guilty of a crime, not only would he not have to pay back the money he owed her, he could also confiscate up to one third of her property. Oh, and this is where a lot of the skepticism yeah. about these claims comes in. Totally. But Thurzo, the prime minister, is her friend and is so reluctant to investigate, but knows he has to. And so at that point, we have hundreds of witness statements, depositions taken before the trial. And we see the same reports over and over about the girls appearing in town in these brutalized conditions or rumors of torture going on. And there would be a few people, tradesmen or vendors that would say something. We saw something really, really weird or we heard screaming when we walk the castle grounds. Most of these are useless. They're townspeople just repeating rumors they've heard, nothing they've seen with their own eyes. And definitely nothing good enough to take a powerful woman like this to trial. But Thurzo is becoming increasingly convinced that there is something going on here, something serious has been happening. And on December 29th, 1610, the Countess was giving a dinner party. She was not expecting a raid on her manor house or her castle, but that's exactly what happened. The Prime Minister, as well as her sons-in-law, and about half the town, literally armed with pitchforks and torches, show up at her manor house in the middle of the Christmas dinner party. They burst in and they conduct a raid. This is staggering. This is a massive breach of social protocol. This is a countess. You don't just storm into her house with an angry mob. With an angry that's mob? That's exactly what he did. Oh, not a, not a police raid. Wow. Well, it is, it's the same thing, right? He's the magistrate. 
And there's not really a legal system. It's just the magistrate and the nobles. There's no police in that era. No. Yeah. So he just rounds up his guys and goes to raid the house. He rounds up local nobles. Okay. We have a letter to Prime Minister Thurzo from his wife that seems to be saying that they may have planted a spy, that she had sent a kitchen maid to work in the house to see what was actually going on inside the house. Good idea. And this has happened a few weeks before the raid, so it seems likely that that yielded some information Um. that made him confident. At this point, she's, how dare you, what are you doing? And sees her. So they start doing the raid of the manor house. And that's where they found a number of girls in different states of torture. They find these girls, like, half dead. And that's when it was ordered, take the countess. We're all going up now to the castle to see what's up there. And in the castle, they find... A horror show. Multiple dead girls. Several more barely surviving girls who they rescue. And the prime minister himself witnesses this. He sees this. He talks to these girls himself. The countess and her servants, who are the ones who've been accused of doing most of the torturing under the countess's supervision are arrested and taken to the Prime Minister's castle. And the trials begin. Again, this is an unbelievably brutal age in general, right? Yeah. Casual capital punishment. Torture is the method of choice for interrogating any witness. Horrific physical punishments for very minor crimes. So these servants who are being accused of torturing the victims are tortured to get a confession. Uh. Torturing was thought to be the way to get the truth out of everybody. You might think, yeah, but what if people just lied to make it stop and they said anything? What was interesting is she had four servants that were thought to be highly involved in the torturing, the killing, and when they were all arrested, they very quickly were all telling the same story. They were questioned individually to make sure that, you know, it wasn't one of those, what did you say? Okay, I'll back you up. They all consistently said the same kinds of things. They blamed each other for the same things and everybody was consistent. So we're pretty convinced they were telling the truth about her. The numbers were much more realistic. It was more like 30, 40. And then they started telling about how this was happening over a period of, you know, 30, 40 years. The stories seem consistent, as far as we can tell, not having been there based on the accounts of the interrogations. Politically, it's really fascinating because nobody wants to prosecute a high noble, especially for such an outrageous crime. None of them want to do this. It's so embarrassing to have to prosecute a countess, right? It's such a political nightmare, and she's so politically important and powerful and all her kids are married to really important people and they're just like, please, please, please don't do this. Please don't embarrass us. Please just let us cover this up. The version of this story that says this is all a setup. This was a powerful woman who needed to be taken down by the machine or the same old witch hunt mass hysteria Mm -hmm. that we see all the time. Those rest on a few things. That the king has a motive to find her guilty, which he definitely does. A very large motive. Yeah. 
the king is very much going to benefit if she is found guilty. But the one actually doing this prosecution is her friend, who all the way through is clearly trying as hard as possible up to the very end to shield her and her family Uh from as many consequences as he can. Has anybody speculated that it's not that the nightmares are happening, but that she's covering for somebody like that? It's not her, but it's some she Elizabeth Bathory demands to testify at her trial. She is adamant that she should be able to explain (laughs) everything that happened. And of course, nobody in power is going to allow this to happen because here's to me the most damning piece of evidence. She doesn't say it didn't happen. She doesn't say I wasn't involved. Her defense is it was these two servant women. It wasn't me. It was these two servant women. And when, of course, all of the officials point out, even if that's true, you knew you were there. You knew they were doing this Uh and you did nothing. She says, even I was afraid of them. Oh. Now, that's nonsense. That's laughable nonsense. She could have them executed instantly. She could have them arrested. She could have stopped them at any point. Yeah. It's a ridiculous argument. Yeah. Again, I think showing she genuinely doesn't understand that she is really going to be held accountable for this. She cannot fathom that someone might punish her for anything. But this is her friend who condemns her in the end. He himself caught her in the act of torturing. And I think that's where the setup story falls down. He, at every stage, is trying so hard to shield her and her family. But he has to say what he saw. And he knows what she is. He's not setting her up. These ministers have no motive to lie. They have no motive to publicly call out the most powerful person in their congregation. Mm. You know, her sons-in-law are testifying against her and helping on the raid of her house. Has anybody over the centuries tried to pin it on somebody else or try to explain? I I think they might have tried to claim it was her husband because he was a brutal, Mm -hmm. he was a horrific man. But he dies and then it keeps going on, He dies, he's gone, yeah. yeah. And it gets much worse. It escalates like crazy after he dies. Probably between 30 and 50 girls in the end that she killed or supervised the killing of. So it's not the 600. Over like... Over decades, over about 40 years. Really ramping up at the end. You know, it's... For me, it's uh, a tale of monstrous mental illness that escalates over time. And the dangers of power and the dangers Mm -hmm. of... Not seeing humans as humans. Yeah, believing, being taught that you are more human or more important Mm -hmm. than any other human. Her children are begging to just be allowed to shuttle her off to a convent somewhere. The king wants her executed. Chop, chop. I want her dead. And of course, I want my debt paid. And I I want her land. And then you've got her children who are all standing to inherit this property. Countess Bathory knew the walls were closing in on her. She was very clever. Shortly before her arrest, she went to her cousin and 
basically asked him to set up a trust for her children. So by doing this, by divesting herself of all the property and putting it in a trust for the children, she's no longer the owner of it. Such a time-honored method when wealthy people <laughs> get convicted of crimes. How about yeah. that? She was a pioneer <laughs> in that legal uh -huh. In the end, the prime minister tries to strike a balance between justice and political expediency. He wants to aid political stability, and also this is family friends. His alternative is this. Countess Bathory will be walled up in a tower room in her own castle for the rest of her life. Wow. The, the usual way that this is phrased is it says walled up in her castle. Uh -huh. I had assumed for years that that meant house arrest, right? She's not allowed out of the castle. No, she is walled up in a room in a tower in her castle. Oh. Truly wa walled in, yeah. like anchoress style, non-consensual anchoress style. That is so fairy tale -ish. Just a little opening for food. for food and objects to go. This seems a suitably right. Edgar Allan Poe-esque mm -hmm. ending to this extremely gothic, mm -hmm. bizarre tale. And the murder stopped? And the murder stopped. Okay, then. <laughs> she lives three years in this box. And she dies of probably heart failure. She was describing her own death to the guard sitting outside the door. The night that she died, she had called to her jailer and said to him, I'm cold and my legs are hurting and they're numb. That night, she was reported to have been singing hymns beautifully. Don't know if it's true or not, but that's what was reported. And then at about two o'clock in the morning, she passed away. The Hungarian parliament literally passed a statute saying that her name could never be spoken again in polite society. Pretty much all trace of her needs to be erased because it was so heinous what had happened. Her story has been the basis of all kinds of movies and stories and mythologies, from the evil queen in Snow White to the worst shock gore horror movies. Yeah. She's a kind of legendary evil now. But of all of the terrible things that Elizabeth Bathory actually did, mm -hmm. the thing that society as a whole is still angriest at her about 500 years later is the one thing she didn't do. Oh, that's so interesting. The bathtubs of blood. Uh -huh. She never bathed in blood. She never used blood for anything. She was not a vampire. <laughs> the oh. point of all of this is supposedly to gain eternal youth. Oh, yeah. To keep her beauty by stealing the blood of youthful virgins. Uh-huh. This was not happening. No version of that was happening. She was actually very fastidious about blood. She would make everyone else clean it up. So despite yeah. that being like the prevailing image of Elizabeth Bathory, mm -hmm. we've even included my favorite illustration of that scene on our website. Mm. It simply did not happen. 
Yeah, it's fascinating because like culturally speaking in the 16th century, people are not bathing in bathtubs. That's not a thing. Yeah. So, I mean, every, every, yeah. <laughs> every layer of this story yeah, is ridiculous. See, you can see the later additions and elaborations, little bits that yeah. come from different time periods. And in fact, none of these stories of the bathing in the blood appear for at least 100 years after she dies. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. It is a product of a different time yeah, trying holds to up. explain. <laughs> yeah. She never had any claim to or desire to keep her youthful looks through blood or magic. Mm. It didn't happen. So why is this the thing? Yeah. That everyone who knows about her knows about her, right? It, it arrives a hundred years later. Because mm -hmm. that's a classic motif for an evil queen. She must have a motivation. And... and this is the explanation. This is the part that our society has become fixated on, right? This is hmm. the proof of her ultimate depravity. Hmm. And it is a, a fascinating trope that you can track all the way through mm -hmm. human history. Sure. This evil woman who will do anything to keep her youth and beauty. Often we just encounter stories and then see how they slot into our standard set of folklore motifs. Mm. And if all her victims are young girls, then the mm -hmm. obvious conclusion is, oh, we've got evil queen motif, eternal youth motif. This is the motivation, right. obviously. Right. What else? Can what else could it be? Right. right. Women aren't naturally vicious no. or brutal or violent. Mm -hmm. So it must be that. Mm -hmm. Because women care about how they look. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Huh. Apparently, we truly believe that the, the most deviant thing that a woman can do is to trick people, presumably men, into believing that she is younger uh. than they think she is, that she is more beautiful <laughs> than they think she is. Snow White's stepmother, yeah, who is, is apparently based on this, sure. Rapunzel's mom, every truly evil witch, their goal is to keep their youthful appearance when they no longer deserve it. Mm. This is the peak evilness that a woman can do. Yeah. That's interesting. I don't. I interpret it differently in that, like, Society over the centuries, we think, who is the most innocent, absolutely not suspicious person? A young, mm. beautiful woman. She's mm. like the most trustable person there is. And so we tell these stories where the young, beautiful woman turns out to be powerful and vindictive. It's sort of mm -hmm. twisting those narratives so that it's like, what if the people we can trust most are actually the predators? Yeah. I think that's why we tell those stories. Yeah, I think it's both. You can still, in any dark corner of the manosphere today, find massive amounts of anxiety about women tricking men into thinking they are prettier or younger than they are. Sure. And it's really unsettling and familiar, this idea that tricking men into desiring you when you should no longer deserve to be desired is the most dangerous evil thing a woman could do. Yeah. I think it's much deeper. I mean, you have the idiots who are like, how dare you trick me into thinking you're yeah. pretty. But on the level of folklore and m motifs, 
I think one of our yeah. biggest social fears is that the people who look lovely and seem innocent mm -hmm. could actually turn out to be the monsters. That yeah. is a deep, deep fear. The shapeshifter comes up in every culture mm -hmm. as the most terrifying thing, right? What if you don't know who mm -hmm. you're looking at? What if you can't tell? And so it's who gendered really because society says girls are harmless. Yeah, we trust girls. Innocent, yeah. pure. Girls are like that. And so mm. a story that involves all women is saying, like, whoa, 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 everything about this is so wrong. It can't even be true. Yeah. And just flashing back to all my folklore classes in grad school and this whole world of how humans tell stories. What sticks in the end? We'll take a truth story and then we'll overlay it with our classic motifs and then we'll go, ah, there we go. Now that is a story that yeah. strikes to the core of everybody that will then be repeated because it has these deep truths lodged in it. Yeah. Whether they were true or not almost doesn't matter in the end. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll probably never know exactly what happened. Mm. How much of this is true? How much of it is rumor? I'm sure we'll go back and forth another dozen times over the next 500 years. Mm. She certainly did not kill 600 girls. But she almost certainly killed a lot of girls. And it's a horror story that will echo down through time and has created many of the most influential tropes and stories in our society today. So many of the anxieties and cautionary tales we mm -hmm. still do today come from what was created out of this story. Mm. That's what Halloween is about. On our website at whatshernamepodcast.com, you'll find links, resources, photos, and more, including links to all of Kim Craft's books as well as information about how to become a patron of the podcast. Music for this episode was provided by Aaron Kenny, Kevin McLeod, Brian Bolger, Jimena Contreras, Kinsas Moriera, Esther Abrami, Miu, Doug Maxwell, and John Patitucci. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. You can also follow us on Instagram, Blue Sky, and Facebook, where we post all kinds of great content every week. Our interns are Kennedy Just and Katie Boucher. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle. Registration is now open on What's Her Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazil Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. Yeah.